I would encourage you today to follow along. We'll be looking at really one verse out of Psalm 115 as we start our new series uh, in, in called Worship More Than Music. And as we get going, I, I want to let you know, sometimes I like to let you know about things that are going on in our life because they'll probably work into a sermon illustration. And Clarissa and I have kept it somewhat under the radar, but we have finalized our adoption. I didn't know if you knew we were adopting and our adoption is finalized. We, we have, <laughs> his name is Z and, uh, and that's a, a new thing for us. I was going to joke that we had adopted a cat, but after last week's sermon, I knew you, none of you would believe me. And so uh, this is the, he's the new addition to, to our house and I'm sure he will work into a sermon somewhere. All right. Uh, we are in this new series, four weeks on worship, where we call worship more than music. And so uh, today we're going to dig into a, a number of different texts, uh, but Psalm 115.1 will form the, the backbone of our, our, the sermon today. Next week we'll, look about, we'll talk about how we utilize music in worship, trying to engage our heart and our head in worship. Then we'll move on to talk about worship as sacrifice. And lastly, from Romans 12, we'll talk about worship as transformation. And so these four weeks, we'll be together on this topic of worship. And then after that, we'll begin a long series in the book of Exodus that I'm really excited about. And uh, it will be great to do that together. All right. Uh, as the popularity of theme parks has risen over the last 50 years, really, uh, theme parks have taken the opportunity to one-up each other in ex terms of experience. So, you know, wh wherever you're at, you know, whatever theme park, they're trying to one-up the next one. And so while uh, Disney seems to have the crown of king of theme parks right now, there's been an, an advent amongst many theme parks of this idea of the experience. You know, a lot of times they'll take movies and put them in experience. Uh, lately, Star Wars, uh, once Disney bought them, apparently at Downtown Disney, you can go to Star Wars Secrets of the Empire, a fully immersed experience where you become a stormtrooper. Uh, experience, that's the thing. Everyone's looking for experience. If you've ever taken a survey, you have seen this. A survey says, tell me about your experience today, your guest experience You'll get a survey and you'll get a few questions to make sure that, this, that your experience was the greatest and best thing. Um, the, you know, a movie experience. Have you ever taken a, a survey about a movie? How was your experience today? And these experience things are almost always issued in entertainment venues or environments where someone's trying to sell you something because they want to make the focus about you because if your experience was good you're likely to come back and spend more money and they'll get other people to come for a good experience. We are so used to being catered to and our experience that this language has worked into our worship as well. Have you ever heard someone ask, did you have a good experience at church today? Did you have a good worship experience? This is somewhat troubling to me. Because when we call our worship experience, when we talk about that on a given week, a given Sunday, uh, we even talk about it at, at certain Christian concerts. How was your worship experience? And what we really mean by this is the feeling that one has when singing songs in a church or a concert. If you've ever reflected on your own worship experience, you know this. Have you ever just asked yourself questions about your experience on a Sunday morning? It is troubling 
because we ask ourselves questions like this. Am I comfortable with the environment? Did I like the length of the music set today? Am I distracted by something? Like, you know, Peter not wearing shoes when he leads worship, right? <laughs> Am I reminded of my childhood? You know, like, so we, have, we come into uh, the gathering of a church, and you can have all kinds of, uh, of, of triggers, so to speak, about your upbringing. Was it good or bad? Do I walk away feeling refreshed by my experience? How about worship through communion? I, have you said, I feel so good after being reminded what Jesus did for me. And the key question of worship experience, did you notice in those questions the key words that were repeated over and over? Did I, me, when we talk about a worship experience, we're focused on ourselves. And it's not even overt. And everyone who walked into this place, what what are you doing today in worship? Well, we're worshiping God. But yet at some level, we're trying to engage a feeling. Uh, Daryl Hart is a professor at Hillsdale College, and, and he wrote of evangelicals, he wrote this, evangelicals love emotions. They elevate church services based on whether or not they provide a transcendent experience. They chastise preachers for being too dry or heady, because they want someone who speaks from the heart. In other words, we want a worship experience that makes us feel good. And in desiring this, we have so effectively turned the focus of worship from God to us. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, as fallen creatures, it is one of the most basic and fundamental inclinations to worship something or someone other than the true God. When most of us come to worship God, we're really effectively worshiping ourselves. Which means before worshiping corporately, we have an individual battle that we must wage before the worship even begins. We have to battle a a, a battle in us. We have to wage a war because we're going to fight against ourselves and our inclination to make worship about ourselves when worship should be about God. And the reality is, look, friends, we're just products of our culture. Our culture elevates the importance of self. Uh, think about these lines from pop culture around you that you've seen, you heard. Someone will say, you just need to focus on you for a while. How many friends have told you that? Huh? You need to believe in yourself. Huh? You need to listen to your feelings. Go with your heart. You need to do what you want to do. Trust in yourself. And unstated in all this is worship yourself because everyone else should too. It's no wonder that we are raising a generation that comes without a purpose, that is floundering to try to find a reason to exist. Because we've told the next generation, be whatever you want, but we haven't told them what it is. Be what you were made to be. But they have no idea. Friends, I'll tell you unequivocally today, as we get into worship, it starts with this simple concept. You were designed to worship God. You were designed to bring glory to God. And this is your created purpose. And anything outside of this will leave you floundering. You were made to worship God, and ultimately that brings joy. But we have it flip-flopped. We pursue happy feelings 
and use a worship as a means to that. When we come to God in worship, it is not about our feelings. It's about Him and His glory. Worship is more than a feeling. Worship is more than a feeling. Feelings are important. We'll look at that in the future. But today, I want you to know that worship is more than a feeling. If you're writing something down today, write this down. This is the thing that I want to mention over and over again and talk about over and over. Worship isn't about our feelings. Worship is about God's glory. Worship isn't about our feelings. Worship is about God's glory. We have to fight. We must fight to engage this truth. Think about a drone operator. He works for the Air Force maybe, and his job is to surveil a terrorist in a person a particular region. And so he's sitting in his, uh, his Air Force base in the U.S. He's on, on the other side of the world. He's operating a drone and he's supposed to be surveilling a particular terrorist. But as the drone operator notices, he goes close to a, a local beach and he spends more time looking at the pretty ladies on the beach than he does surveilling the terrorist. And he needs to shift his focus back to what he's supposed to be doing. He needs to shift his focus and lock in on the right target. I like this illustration for what we're talking about today because this is what happens to us. If we do not intentionally engage our minds in the worship of God, we will drift and make this to the wrong target. We will drift and focus on ourselves. We need to unlock from the wrong target and lock in on the right one. We need to shift our focus off of us and lock it in on the right object, God. Because worship isn't about our feelings. Worship is about God's glory, and this makes it a battle. Psalm 115.1 forms the, the basis of what I want to talk about today. It simply says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. One verse, this is our text today, and we're going to let other verses from the Bible inform our understanding, expand our understanding of this. But really, I have two things to talk about today from this text. One of them is how to unlock from the wrong target. How do we unlock from the wrong target? Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us. The psalmist is very clear, and I think the psalmist recognizes in this text that it is a battle to engage the right target. We have to fight to unlock from the wrong target. So he begins by repeating the call of God to God's people, not to us, not to us. He says it twice. And that's why I like the imagery of this fighter pilot changing his target lock. He's got to be intentional. We're automatically set to worship feelings and focus on ourselves, and we've got to shift our target. And in speaking to worship leaders on this point, um, blogger and worship leader Chris Collins says this, and I thought it was good. He says, our primary job, and he means as worship leaders, is to shift people's focus from trying to be the object of worship to worshiping the proper object. Oh, that's good. How do we unlock from the wrong target? How do we do that today? How do we unlock from the wrong target? A couple things I want to mention here as we think about this. The first thing we have to do is we have to identify that we're believing a lie. Unlocking the wrong target, the first thing you have to do is identify that you and I are believing a lie. You are not equal to God, 
And when you worship yourself by elevating your feelings, you embrace something that is cataclysmically bad. You're elevating yourself above God and you're believing a lie. This lie goes all the way back to the earliest pages of the Bible. God had created a paradise and a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, to live in that paradise. And look what the serpent does when he deceives Eve. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, listen to, what, listen to it. I wish I could do a snake voice. I can't, so I won't do it. But anyway, did, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, the first thing is, he's getting it wrong from the get-go. God told him a more specific direction than that. But he's, he's lying to her from the start. The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did not say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, which is an expansion of the command of God. So automatically, she is lying now, or you will die. Now look at what the serpent does. He says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Even Adam and Eve were created to worship God, to be in perfect harmony with him. And the first thing that Satan says to Eve is, God doesn't love you. God doesn't want your best. God is afraid of you. He, he wants you to elevate your, he, he wants to elevate him, but you should elevate yourself. Friends, we believe the same kind of lies all the time, and we don't even know it. You have to work hard to identify lies in your life. Usually this has something to do with preferences. When we come together as a church, we love to elevate our preferences, and then we forget to identify that our preferences don't really matter. For instance, we say, I like this style of music, or I don't like this style of music. I like an atmosphere that's like X or Y. I like a type of worship leader, one who wears Banana Republic clothing only when he leads worship. Something like that. We have preferences and they're sometimes ridiculous, but what we do then is rather than saying, you know, that's really taking the focus off God and putting it on me. No, what we do then is we spiritualize them so we can lie to ourselves and say, I really care about God and his glory. And so we say things like, well, my preferred style is the biblical style. Or God wants to be, you know, God wants to be free from a distractions, a focused atmosphere. God wants this. God wants that. We spiritualize it. We say we're making it about God, but in reality, we're just making it about our preferences. Way years ago, when I was in seminary, I was an intern at my local church, and one of my jobs was uh, leading worship. And uh, as a 20 three-year-old. I didn't know what I was doing at all. 22, I was probably 22 years old. Get up there, and there was this lady, and, and I'm, uh, you know, when you're 22, anyone who's old seems ancient, so she seemed ancient to me, uh, but she did not like that, uh, that what we were doing is that we had an overhead projector, like this new technology, you know, and a transparency on the overhead projector, and some teenager would sit down front with the overhead transparency and try to keep up with where we are in the song. And she did not like that we were not using the hymnals. It's really bothered her. And she said, how are, 
she said to me, Dave, if we do this, how are God's people going to learn to read music if they don't use a hymnal? <laughs> do you see? She, she couched it in language that was spirit. God's people. Like God's people need to learn to read music so they can worship him. And I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I just went, okay. But, uh, you know, later on, you think about that and say, well, is it the church's job to disciple people? Or is it the church's job to, to teach them how to read notes? I mean, we spiritualize all of our preferences, it seems like. But we're just believing a lie and ultimately we're elevating ourselves. And we have to be aware of this. That the tendency for all of us is to say, my preference is God's preference. But when we use the word of God as our foundation, and when we intentionally say, I'm going to take my eyes off myself and put them on God, I'm going to do what's good for the benefit of others, we identify the lie and we begin to unlock from the wrong target. Another way we, that we can unlock from the wrong target not only do we have to identify lies in our life, but we can also, identifying the right target means we can encourage others around us. That's what the psalmist does. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. He's saying this not just to God, but he's saying this to everybody around him. We need to keep telling each other that <laughs> this, that it's not about us until it sticks. Make it a prayer before you come to worship. Before you get out of your car, if you come with your family on a Sunday morning, before you get out of car and come into the corporate worship, say a prayer and say, Lord, help this not to be about us today, but let it be about you. Be an example throughout the service. Get here early. <laughs> get here early. Don't get here late. Get here early so you can connect with other guests. What this does is it says, you know what? This morning's not about me. It's about other people, and it gets your mind off you. Not to us, not to us. Pray with someone before or after the service when we're focused on the things of God and others and when we love the things God loves, it gets our mind off us. It gets our mind off our feelings and it keeps us from setting up idolatry of self. Worship isn't about our feelings. Worship is about God's glory and it's a battle. Not to us. So if we unlock from the wrong target... What we then must do is lock on to the right target, God himself. The second thing we need to do is lock on to the right target. And this is where we see that the verse continues. But to your name be the glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. As I read this, the first thing that jumps out to my mind is glory. What's the glory? When we talk about the glory of God, what do we mean? What does the psalmist mean? What does scripture mean when he talks about the glory of God? And it's actually a very difficult word to define. Uh, I, I think that John Piper does it right when he says the glory of God is the public, public declaration of God's beauty in his holiness. It's going public with the holiness of God. I take this from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy. Do you remember this account where Isaiah has this vision where he's transcendent? He's standing in the presence in the throne room of God and the seraphim are circling and, and there's this majestic glory that's going on and Isaiah can barely handle it. And he says, and they're saying, these seraphim, these angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his 
not his holiness, with his glory. It's the going public with God's holiness, his perfectness. That's the glory of God. We worship God when we are part of the public rendering of his holiness. This is why in our culture that is dead set on individualism, this is why we come together as a family. You can find better preaching at home on the internet. You can find better music at home on the internet. You can find better pastors on the internet, on your TV. We say, no, I will not worship God alone. I will fight to be part of a corporate body of worship because it's about God's glory being public. I don't know, many Sundays, I'm sure you don't feel like gathering with the body. Guess what? I have those Sundays too. I get up and go, oh, oh no. <laughs> I got to do this today. It's not every Sunday, but I have them. And then we fight. We fight to say no because the worship of God's glory, we got to go public. And we do that with each other when we worship him. We must gather publicly to declare the glory, the perfect holiness of God. So that's God's glory. Now, why has God seemed to be so obsessed with his own glory? Uh, another verse from Isaiah, chapter 48. He, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Yikes. That's a little selfish. I mean, wow. I mean, it, Anybody else who does this, like if I would get up here and I would say, hey, everyone, today is about my glory because I'm awesome. And if any of you want any glory today, I'm not sharing it. I'm not giving it up. This is about me. Uh, uh, rightfully so, <laughs> you should start throwing things at me, you know, spitballs, whatever, if I were to do that. Because it's wrong. It's a misplaced glory. Nobody likes a showboat. So how can God be like this? Well, we simply say this. The reason that innately we don't like it when someone showboats, when they bring glory to themselves, is because innately we know that there is someone greater than that person, whether they choose to believe it or not. If I would say up here and say, I am the greatest, you would say, no, you're not, Dave, because there is one who is greater. So for me to elevate myself is idolatry. And it's innately, we know it's wrong. But for God to elevate anyone himself, but himself would be idolatry. There is no one greater than him. And God will not do that. He will not be an idolater. He will not yield his glory to another. See, what the, the, our confusion is, is that when we see people elevating themselves, it's for their own good. But when God elevates himself, glorifies himself, makes his holiness manifest, goes public, when God does this, his glory overflows for our good. Think of it this way. We have a new dog in our house. We've had dogs before. Think of a, maybe a two or a three-year-old that has decided to pour himself a bowl of cereal in the morning, you know? And so, you know, he's at the counter, and, and of course, the cereal is just falling all over and dropping on the floor, and there is the dog. 
on the ground. You cannot move that dog from that spot, right? Every crumb that is dropped, that dog laps up and can't wait for that crumb to fall to the ground. It overflows. God's glory overflows for our good. Now, the illustration breaks down because the toddler probably doesn't mean to do it, although he might. But God intends for his glory to overflow for our good. That is the greatest way that God can love us is by pursuing his own glory because when his glory overflows, it's always for our good. And this brings us to the very last part of our of verse. So when we lock, unlock from the wrong target, lock on the right target, the last part of the verse says, we do this because of your love and faithfulness. Oh, these are two great words. All throughout our series in the Psalms, we were focused on, on this word love, hesed. It came up over and over again. And if you don't remember, uh, go back and listen to the Psalms series. It's this unique word for God's love that we don't have a word for in the English language. It's a love based on covenant commitment. He is radically committed to us. So we can lock on to the right target because the overflow of God's glory is his hesed, his love, and his firm, trustworthy, consistent faithfulness. The Hebrew word there is emet, and it means consistent, always done, firm, trustworthy. You don't have to question. When God says he'll do something, he'll do it. He's always there. God is consistently in a love relationship with us, and this love drove him to do something unthinkable, friends. This love, this faithfulness, this overflow of his glory led him to breach the, the barriers of our universe to come to us. This led the God of the universe whose glory was paramount to humble himself, Philippians says, by becoming one of us. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, this is the good news. That God's glory always overflows for our good. And he did it in the incarnation when God, Jesus, became one of us. When God, Jesus, gave himself up for us. And when he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, he did that because of his love and faithfulness. And this is God's grace to us. This is his grace to us. The, so when we worship, we are engaging the glory of God. We are unlocking from the wrong target ourselves and locking on to the right target, God. So we have to ask the question then, what, what do we do in response to his glory? Well, we worship. The word worship in English, you've probably it comes from the Old English, meaning worth-ship. God is worth our worship. Worship is always a response to God's grace to us. When we recognize that God's glory is the glory that overflows to our good, we worship him for who he is. Um, Howard Marshall says this, uh, speaking of the term worship, he says, the term worship is misunderstood if it gives the impression that the major element in what human beings do or offer to God. So in other words, we miss it if we think that worship is about what we're doing. He continues, 
Biblical religion is primarily concerned with what God does for his people. This is particularly evidence in the New Testament where the words expressing human activity of worshiping God are surprisingly rare in the descriptions of the meeting of the church. In other words, <laughs> they don't tell us what they did in worship. We get very little picture when we read the New Testament about how the early church did this because it's not about what they're doing. It's just a response to God's grace. Marshall concludes his thoughts by saying this. Worship is a human response to a gracious God. Worship needs to be placed in this context if it is to be properly understood. So we begin our series by, or conclude our first message in this series by asking this question, how should we define worship? How should we define this response to the grace of God in our lives? A response to his glory. I've found no better definition than that that John Piper offers us when he says, worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. Uh, I love this definition for three reasons. First of all, it's not just a way of reflecting, it's a way of gladly reflecting. So we are engaging our joy in this. We are engaging our willingness to do this. We are saying, I take the target off me and I place it on God, gladly. The second reason I love this definition is the word reflecting. What the word reflecting does in this definition is say everything we've just talked about. The word reflecting means it's not about what I'm doing because what can I, a bankrupt, sinful human being, offer a perfectly holy God? I, I got nothing. All I can do is hold up my life as a mirror and be a reflection. And the last part of the definition, the radiance of his worth. So we're holding our lives of a mirror and we're saying, God, look at yourself. You are beautiful. You are holy. You are filled with grace. And your glory overflows for my good. And that is worship. Now, music is a, a big part of this. We're, as human beings, we're designed, and there's something about music that helps us in particular focus our lives as a mirror on God. And that's part of it. We're going to look at that next week in particular, dig into the music part of it. But it's not all. Feelings are a piece of our worship, but not all. We have to engage intentionally. And the last verse I want to leave you with before we leave this as a verse that I forgot to put in there, but I'm going to read it to you. All right. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this. Paul says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, that's interesting. So you mean, Dave, that I can glorify God by eating and drinking. <laughs> I do that really well, you guys, you know. God be the glory. No, no, no. See, we think of, uh, we think of eating totally different than the early, uh, the ancient Near Eastern world would have thought about it, where we have such an overabundance of food that food is something we do for pleasure, primarily. But in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, food was something that you looked for for daily survival. 
It was a, every day you woke up and went, where am I going to get some food today to survive this day? So what Paul says is that in the everyday, routine, mundane activities of life, we can do that in such a way that we take our eyes off us and we set the target squarely on God. Did you know you can worship God in every single thing you do? And in saying this, worship then becomes not about feelings, but so much more becomes about a way of life. We unlock from the wrong target. We lock on the right one. Not to us, O oh Lord. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. I, I'm going to pray and our worship team is going to come up and, um, and we're going to sing a song right out of Psalm 115.1. Uh, it's kind of an oldie, but uh, a goodie. And we're going to engage this psalm and this truth and we're going to ask God, would you help me to take my eyes off me and set the target squarely on you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is with joy that we gladly receive the overflow of your radiance and worth. We receive this. And your grace causes us to respond to you, to reflect to you who you are. Would you help us, God? to take our eyes off ourself, off our feelings, off our pride. Would you help us to shift the target to be about you regardless of circumstances because your glory overflows to us for our good. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.